Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin, and welcome back to my series on J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Last time we covered Book 5, Chapter 5 of The Lord of the Rings, The Ride of the Rohirrim, and this week we're on to Book 5, Chapter 6, The Battle of the Pelennor Fields. The last two chapters ended with a miracle. The same miracle. The Rohirrim arriving to drive back the shadow and welcome the sun as it glittered on King Theoden's shield. This chapter begins with the word, but. It's Tolkien bringing us up short, reminding us that victory is as temporary as defeat. There's always a catch, and the enemy is too powerful to be dispelled with a single cavalry charge, however glorious and legendary. After all, Tolkien writes, it's not some random orc leading the siege. It's Sauron's right-hand man, or rather, right-hand wraith. The Witch King's fortunes may have turned, Tolkien writes, the world itself seeming to turn against him and his master. But this is the guy who destroyed the northern kingdom of men. He's not going to turn back from the southern kingdom at the first major obstacle. He left the gate and vanished, Tolkien writes, and then the author shifts the narrative camera back to Theoden, focusing on the details of his charge, so we'll forget about the Witch King before Tolkien brings him back. And that same sense of the glory fading as this chapter starts and the grim realities of the situation returning applies to the Rohirrim. They have overrun the northern half of the Pelennor Fields, Tolkien telling us that Elfhelm's men specifically are taking down the siege engines, so we have a sense of where Merry is in all this. But overrunning the Pelennor Fields isn't endgame. The gate itself is still mobbed with foes. And then, you know, there's the southern half of the Pelennor Fields, which is still covered with Sauron's servants. In particular, there's the Southrons, the only major cavalry force on Team Mordor, and so they're the ones that ride forth to challenge Theoden now. And the clash between the Rohirrim and the Southrons is, as with Theoden's charge, very poetic. Tolkien is paying tribute to his old English predecessors, and like them, he focuses less on interiority here than on tangible objects. If you look at an old English poem he particularly loved, The Battle of Maldon. Then they let fly from their hands, spears file-hardened. Spears grimly ground down, bows were busy, shields were peppered with points. And the way Tolkien describes the fight here is very similar. Right through the press drove Theoden Thangal's son, and his spear was shivered as he threw down their chieftains. Out swept his sword, and he spurred to the standard, hewed staff and bearer, and the black serpent foundered. The spear, the sword, the standard, the black snake upon the enemy's banner, it's focusing on action and expressing character through action. It applies to defeat as well as victory. Theoden's golden shield was dimmed. For now, down comes the Witch King, like a living shadow, spreading fear and dread just as he did during the siege, silencing the song of the Rohirrim charge. Theoden repeats his battle cries, For Theolingas, fear no darkness! But the magic is gone. His horse, Snowman, gets hit with a dart and falls on top of him. And I had forgotten that that's what really kills Theoden, not actually the Witch King himself. And that's just perfect irony, that the horse, the symbol of the riders, what they rode into battle in this glorious charge, that is what brings Theoden down. And speaking of steeds, now we get an incredible description of the monster that the Witch King is riding, this chthonic pseudo-dinosaur, something ancient and foul. As Tolkien writes, it has outlived its day. It's something that no longer belongs in this world. 
like the elves or the Ents, or even Theoden himself. And now we know why the Witch King vanished at the gate, to summon his steed and break the charge by taking down the Rohirrim's leader right in front of them. As with the Siege of Gondor, it's not about logistics here so much as morale. As Tolkien writes, hope to despair, victory to death. Tolkien zooms briefly back into Merry's perspective here. He's doing what hobbits do, staying out of sight, keeping below the attention of the big people. He's been reduced to a beast, the author writes, crawling around on all fours. That's what the Witch King brings, animal terror, destroying our higher functions so we can be enslaved by our fear. Merry feels broken apart. It's interesting how Tolkien writes him here, with Merry's heart crying out for him to stand with Theoden, but his will is silent and his body is shaking. They're not all able to act in unison. It's an interesting contrast with Pippin and Denethor, given that Pippin's heart is now calling him away from service. It really, really gets at my heart when Merry thinks to himself, you said he would be like a father to you, you have to help him. This is a story more about fraternal bonds than paternal, but this is an exception. And all that leads perfectly into Durnhelm, standing alone to defend the king, because Theoden is like a father to Eowyn. And this is the culmination of her arc. As Merry thought to himself when he first saw Durnhelm's eyes, there is someone who's seeking death without hope. And here she is making that stand. What she was afraid of most was not dying in battle, even against an opponent this terrifying. What she feared most, as she told Aragorn, was a cage. That she would not only be kept from her desire, but in time she would come to accept that. No matter what happens here, she has avoided that fate. And that's so powerful because, as I said, the Nazgul work on fear, and the Witch King has nothing to work on when it comes to Eowyn. Simply by being here, she has banished her fears. That's something you can't really say about anyone else on the battlefield. And this is, of course, one of the most distinct, iconic images in all of Lord of the Rings as Merry lifts his head and sees Eowyn glittering in the fading light, standing alone against this shadow of doubt and despair that is the Witch King. And there are many reference points here in terms of Tolkien's inspiration. Boudicca, the British warrior queen who led an uprising against the Romans. Ethelfled, daughter of Alfred the Great, an Anglo-Saxon queen who fought off the Vikings. Or you can think of Eowyn as basically Joan of Arc crossed with Twelfth Night. That's how I like to think about it. Maybe the most central reference point, though, given how Tolkien describes Eowyn as a shield maiden, are the Valkyries. Leslie Donovan, writing in Tolkien the Medievalist, defines Eowyn as a Valkyrie figure from Germanic literature and poetry, a battle maiden delivering divine wrath. Valkyries are associated with radiance, and we see throughout Eowyn's story that her eyes are shining, her armor glittering, she's associated with fire at various points. And that links to her desire for death, which is rooted in warrior pride. Something Tolkien has talked about and critiqued, the, the excess of chivalry that drives you beyond bleak heroic necessity. And in contrast to that is the stewardship and kindling life. And there's an interesting inversion of expectations here where even as Eowyn is riding into battle, she's carrying Mary around almost as if she's pregnant and he's her child. Tolkien is also definitely drawing from Shakespeare here in multiple respects. Macbeth, of course, could not be harmed by one of woman born and the Witch King cannot be slain by the hand of a man. Then there's the ring race line, come not between the Nazgul and his prey, which is, you know, almost word for word from King Lear, come not between the dragon and his wrath. Tolkien pulling from every, every possible dramatic influence to make this scene as momentous as it is. And I love that the Witch King is silent when he realizes Eowyn is a woman, and so she could defy the prophecy. That silent doubt speaks louder than anything he could have said. He can't even attack, he's so taken aback. His dragon strikes first, and Eowyn hews it down like Beowulf. Merry helps her with the Witch King himself, striking a blow to 
the Witch King's ankle, basically. That's as high as he can reach, but that's enough, and it delivers a wound that shifts the reference point to Achilles. Eowyn gathers all her remaining strength for one great thrust. This is the story's great cathartic killing blow, as Sauron doesn't really die in a physical sense, and the deaths of other characters like Saruman, Wormtongue, and Gollum are deliberately stripped of catharsis. Eowyn is striking against a corrupt image of the world that has hemmed her in, and Merry is striking against the Black Riders who invaded his home, who think they run the world. The nothingness of the Ringwraiths has always made them more frightening, but here it becomes a weakness. With the blow struck, there's nothing left to the Witch King, not even a body, just a voice on the air that fades. And you get the sense he's taking a whole world with him. Unfortunately, he's not going alone. Theoden dies with that old world as well. And he dies happy. He's just so relieved that he has not shamed himself, that he can join the songs and stories in pride. It's the same warrior mindset that drives Eowyn. His ancestors will welcome him. He has worth in this world and the next. This is the moment they'll remember Theoden for, the moment he speaks of as the light in his eyes fade. But he's only happy because he doesn't know that Eowyn lies next to him, which Tolkien keeps emphasizing, Theoden telling Mary, go tell Eowyn, I'm so sorry that I never made it back to her. And Mary's devastated by this, and he thinks to himself at one point, hey, wait a minute, why isn't Gandalf here? Couldn't he have intervened, saved the king? And that ties directly into the next chapter, when Gandalf, as he intervenes with Denethor, is talking to himself and saying, there's so much more good I could be doing, I should be doing right now. Those are the ripple effects of Denethor's implosion. Theoden, as I've said before, is Denethor's precise opposite, and Denethor has inadvertently contributed to Theoden's death. Then the other riders of Rohan come up with Eomer leading them, and Eomer tells his men not to weep for Theoden, as he died well. No one gets to live forever, and this is how he would have wanted to go. The women will weep over his grave, Eomer says, but we men must ride to war. And yet, even as he says that, he himself is crying. Tolkien is interested in moments when martial masculinity break down, revealing a more vulnerable and sensitive side. We've already seen that play out with the contrast between Boromir and Faramir. The badass attitude is a performance. You can say it's a necessary performance, but that's what it is. It's a story we tell ourselves to deal with the horrors of death and grief. And it's Eowyn's presence that cuts through the gendered nature of it. Turns out, Eomer, the women are not far off waiting to weep. One of them is right here for you to weep over. And Eomer can't make that okay. He cannot integrate what seems like the death of his sister into a story about how these are all good deaths. This is just wrong for him, a wound in his soul. And so he cries out, death. And all his men cry out with him as they ride away. The song is silent because there is no joy in killing anymore, only the fury and futility of revenge. You can tell how big this blind spot is because they leave Mary there. They forget about him completely like he doesn't matter. At this point, Tolkien starts to drift into the future, as he likes to do, setting this all up as a legend being told to us. This is all going to be the past, something to tell stories about, like a lens overlaying this present tense experience. He tells us that they bury the horse Snowmane in honor, they write a poem on his grave, and the grass always grows green there, but right next to it is where they burn the dragon, the beast that bore the Witch King, and the grass never grows back there. These two great ways to deal with death— you leave either poetry behind, 
or nothing. And just before we zoom back out, Tolkien takes some time to talk about Merry's role in all this, reminding us that there was a historical element to Merry's sword, the sword he got from the Barrow Downs. That belonged to the men of the Northern Kingdom that was destroyed by the Witch King. And that's great. That, that ties it all back in. That, that the Witch King's death, as well as this crowning climactic moment for Eowyn, is also revenge for the destruction of the Northern Kingdom. Which is perfect, as Aragorn, who's from that kingdom, is about to show up. Meanwhile, Eomer is in trouble. His fury has betrayed him, Tolkien writes, leading him into a battle he can't win. The Olafons are islands in the storm, as Tolkien describes the battlefield, which reminds me of how George R. R. Martin writes the mammoths at the wall, the mammoths that are with Mance Raider and then kind of become the only islands in the storm when Stannis' cavalry charge sweeps the wildlings away. So very, very clear influence on that count. Eomer is finding the limits of his death drive. He's just outnumbered, and numbers don't count for everything in war, but they count for one whole hell of a lot. It means the opposing army can keep bringing up fresh soldiers to take on the Rohirrim who have to fight every battle on their own, as weary and grief-stricken as they are. And then we get what seems like the final blow. Black sails on the river, the corsairs we've been hearing about all through Book 5. Eomer sees them and loses all hope. And yet he still laughs, he still defies them, because as Tolkien writes, He's young and the king of powerful people. What, what other life was he going to have? What more could he want before he goes? He's ready to die bravely like his uncle and take pride in that. Living like a song because, as he thinks, there's not going to be anybody to sing about it afterward. And so it seems, yet again, like everyone's going to die, but instead the world is going to be reborn. Because it's not the Corsairs, it's Aragorn. Tolkien has been slow rolling this through book five, and here it pays off. The author hammers every word home because this is the return of the king. His banner shining forth, the glory of light captured and reflected into these signs and symbols. It's the romance of his story always in the background, finally taking center stage. And what's so beautiful about it in context with characters like Eomer and Eowyn and Theoden is this is the inversion of their death wish. This is what gives them all reason to live. Well, Theoden's dead, but it gives Eowyn and Eomer reason to live. And this is a great example of a term that Tolkien coined in his work on fairy stories, the eucatastrophe. Quote, it is a sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of discatastrophe, of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. When the sudden turn comes, we get a piercing glimpse of joy and heart's desire that for a moment passes outside the frame, rends indeed the very web of story, and lets a gleam come through. And that is as moving and spiritual a description of the power of story as I've ever read. And that's what we're seeing here. This joy that, as Tolkien says, does not deny the existence of sorrow and failure. Aragorn and Eomer clasp hands as Aragorn promised they would, and Eomer says their victory is hard won. They've already suffered losses. And Aragorn says, let us avenge it ere we speak of it. Like, I'm not going to be able to fight if you make me as sad as I think you're about to make me. Grief is too much for our hearts, and we must gird our bodies for battle. By the end of it, Tolkien writes, Aragorn and Eomer are weary beyond joy or sorrow. They're just numb. They live through both. 
Not everyone was so lucky. And Tolkien concludes the chapter with a list of the dead from all over. So many, he writes, that no tale can hold it. Again, something that rends the very web of story, something that is, like Lincoln said at Gettysburg, beyond our capacity to express. Songs are only an attempt to immortalize, to get back that which has been lost. The future is always coming, and everything we've done here will be as fiction. So I've been wrapping up each of these Lord of the Rings episodes by talking a little bit about the movie adaptations from Peter Jackson and company that came out around 20 years ago, and how they handled each stretch of the material. Now, as I said, much as I like the irony of Theoden's horse actually being the cause of his death in the books, I think it fits the movie to have a much more visceral, violent attack by the Witch King on Theoden. You get that stuttering frame rate reaction shot from Eowyn, capturing just the the horror and, and rage she's going through witnessing this. It puts you more in her headspace, especially since, unlike the books, we're not going to get the surprise of her reveal. I had forgotten that Miranda Otto's takedown of the dragon comes pretty much directly from the book. Like, that's how Tolkien described it. As with the giant mace that breaks her arm, Tolkien was just keyed into this cinematic heavy metal imagery. And the crowning moment of it is perfect. That close-up on her face as the music fades, she rips off the helmet, I am no man, and then the scream. Even more than I am no man, I love the the full-mouth, blazing-eyed scream she gives. And the, the crunch, the visceral crunch of her sword going into nothing as you watch the Witch King explode. Extremely satisfying. Speaking of things that work differently between book and movie, the irony of Theoden not realizing Eowyn is there works beautifully on the page. In the movie, more tear-jerking to have them interact directly, Theoden accept her presence, and then ask her, not Mary, to let him go, because his body is broken. There's much less emphasis on Eomer here than in the book. If I had to highlight a weakness of the Rohirrim side of things, which I generally like, it's very emotional. Eomer gets short shrift because a lot of his big lines, like the, the Declaration of Death, were poached for other speeches mostly by his uncle, because the filmmakers understandably wanted to build Theoden up as a character so we would feel his death more strongly. Eomer is very much on the back burner at this point, which is too bad because I love Carl Urban as an actor, but not a major flaw. I have more mixed feelings about the execution of how Aragorn shows up with his army of ghosts. On the one hand, I get why they did this. It is odd coming back to the books to realize that the dead don't actually play a direct role in the Pelennor fields. They're already, they've already dissipated into the universe by this point. Having them show up at the battle in the movie, it's a much more direct and cinematic payoff for their presence than what happens in the book, where Legolas and Gimli later fill us in and describe how the ghosts helped against the pirates. And I, I, I do love the moment in the movies when the orcs who are at first like, oh, we can fight these three guys, and then they see the ghosts, and then they start retreating. That is wonderful. But the ghosts themselves, you know, it was okay in the caves because it was dark and there were a lot of them. It was mystical and ethereal. But in the movie, the Pelennor Fields takes place in broad daylight, and the ghosts just look goofy. <laughs> Part of it is just the, the technology, the, how the technology has changed. Coming back to this this early aughts movie, they, they look like they're in a PS2 game. And that's, you know, again, the limits of the technology, nothing you can do about that. But it's really not helped by certain choices that have been ramped up from two towers, like Legolas's ridiculously OP fighting and the tacky stereotyping of the Southrons. Like that bit where Legolas is going all over the elephant, killing people, then sliding off and Gimli going, only counts as one. I think that's probably for me the weakest part of the whole movie trilogy and lines up more with certain directions, certain negative trends in blockbusters since. It definitely leaves a bad taste in your mouth relative to Helm's Deep, which, while I think was overblown in the movies in terms of its importance to everything, was, I think, pretty much flawlessly executed. 
Pelennor Fields not as much, but you still get that catharsis when everything is swept away and you let out that breath and then you remember there's like an hour more of the movie left. And how Tolkien manages that transition is very interesting and something I'm looking forward to talking about. So that's going to wrap us up for Lord of the Rings this week. And this is going to be the end of my weekly Lord of the Rings episodes. I say weekly because I'm going to be still doing these Lord of the Rings episodes on a monthly basis. As I said recently, very sadly, Jeff is not coming back to the podcast, but our great friend Manu is stepping in to be the new co-host of the Nauticast, and we're going to be kicking off a Song of Ice and Fire episodes again in mid-August. So I'm going to be starting up my monthly Lord of the Ring episodes in September. And these episodes, since I'm going back to a Song of Ice and Fire episodes made for the general public, Lord of the Rings episodes going forward are going to be only for patrons. They're going to be released on our Patreon. So if you haven't signed up for our Patreon, but have been enjoying these Lord of the Rings episodes, this is a great opportunity to head on over to patreon.com slash nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, and check it out. We have early access, exclusive episodes, a bunch more benefits for patrons. And then starting in September, as a $5 and above patron, you'll be getting one monthly episode of Lord of the Rings, which in September is going to be Book 5, Chapter 7, The Pyre of Denethor, one of the most dramatic and intense chapters in the whole series. Really looking forward to that. So as I said, that's going to be available over at patreon.com slash nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, sometime in the first couple weeks of September. So thank you so much for listening. As always, you can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, Podbean, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to us. You can follow us on Twitter at nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. And you can follow me at PoorQuentin on Twitter. So thanks again for listening, and I will see you in September for Book 5, Chapter 7 of The Lord of the Rings.